From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. That's right. It's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday, so we won't be taking your phone calls today. We're going to empty out that mailbag a little bit. So if you'd like to be part of a future mailbag episode, please don't hesitate to send us an email. That address is openline at EWTN.com. That's openline at EWTN.com. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program, and our host is he is every Tuesday. Father Wade Menezes, how are you? I'm doing great, Jack, but I don't want you nor our listeners to think that I'm bilocating, that I'm both in Kentucky at my office doing this show and also in Bethpage, New York, giving a week-long parish mission for Lent. I'm actually only in Bethpage, New York. Okay, very good. And you know what Bethpage, New York is most famous for? I don't. Please tell me so I can have something to share with the people when I get there. It has one of the most difficult public (laughs) golf courses on planet Earth. Uh, On it, it has hosted the U.S. Open on a couple of different occasions. Uh, Most recently won by Phil Mickelson, if I'm not mistaken. But uh, Bethpage Black is the the course, and it's, uh, it's brutal. Wow. Wow. So it's, well, a you good, it's a good penance. That? It's a good penance for people during this Lenten season to uh <laughs> bring, not only humble that, themselves. I was, <laughs> th- that's an excellent point. But not only that, I was gonna say since you knew all that what you just said and you knew it so well, you should give up golfing for Lent, Jack. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's not always so hard to do in February most places. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. And and if Johnette heard me, she'd probably say, No, Father Wade, no, no. I actually like it when he gets out now and again goes and goes golfing, you know. <laughs> So we are off and rolling this Lenten season, and it's never, ever too late to continue to ramp up our Lenten efforts, and you're going to give us some suggestions today. Exactly. Today on this February 28th that I am in Bethpage, New York, preaching this parish mission, you know, two weeks ago, we, on February 14th, we talked about how the seven capital sins can help prepare us for Lenten resolutions and either negative ways, giving up something, or in positive ways, doing something, right? Uh, So that kind of set the foundation for us, uh, because the seven capital sins are just that. They're the capital sins. Every other sin can somehow, someway, somehow, someway be linked to one or more of the capital sins. Again, that's why they're called the capital sins. So today, I want to just go through a list of some 40 things Um, that I think are very, very good, from an article by Sherry Antonetti, and I thank her for her good work, from an article that appeared in the National Catholic Register uh, last year, or a couple years back, excuse me, February 27th of 2020, as well as the year before that, March 12th of 2019. And so she says, with the Lenten season underway, here are a few ideas for how to begin the spiritual journey into the desert to prepare for the suffering, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And now she gives this list of 40. I'm going to count down backwards because that's what she does in the article. Not that there's any numerical significance here, but I found it interesting that she backed up the numbers beginning with number 40 and uh, going to um, uh, number 1. So 40 things for the 40-day season of Lent, number 1 or number 40. Go to Mass an extra time or two per week. Give up caffeine. (laughs) 
<laughs> Jack, you always are ready to comment on that one. <laughs> so, so am I. I got. I, I'm with you, pal. I'm with you. That is it's, so tough. <laughs> it's a difficult one to give up. Uh, number thirty-eight is volunteer in the soup kitchen or a hospital for a few hours a week. Thirty-seven, surrender credit cards. Thirty-six, pray a daily rosary or Divine Mercy chaplet. I might add. Number 35, share the daily readings at dinner, the daily readings from Mass. 34, fast from all fast food. 33, take on a novena or a devotional. Number 32, add an hour of adoration to your weekly regimen. Number 31, become a lay reader or usher or bring Holy Communion to the homebound. Number 30, write to friends and representatives about your faith. Number 29, go to the gym or exercising daily as an offering. Number 28, abstain from a favorite activity like Facebook or Twitter or from one's phone. Number 27, refrain from unpleasant, catty, or snarky comments, even in your head. Ones that are not literally said but only floating around in your head. Whatever. Try to get those as well. Get rid Whatever. of those as well. Whatever. <laughs> 26, say, I love you daily to all of your family. Number 25, offer up the most hated chore you have, performing it with a cheerful heart. Number 24, receive the sacrament of reconciliation and adopt a daily examination of conscience. That's a good one. A daily examination of conscience should be a staple in the Catholic spiritual life. Number 23, become more educated on the catechism or church history. Number 22, match all extra spending in charity giving. Number 21, eliminate television or entertainment screens. Number 20, ban the cell phone or computer when not at work. Number 19, visit the sick, the elderly, or the imprisoned. Number 18, pray daily for the souls in purgatory. Number 17, seek reconciliation with estranged family members and friends. Number 16, give up a time fritterer, she calls it, surfing the net, shopping, television, telephone, etc. Number 15, have meatless meals all 40 days. Number 14, invite others to Mass with you. Number 13, clear out the closets of excessive toys and clothes, household items, etc. that can be donated to charity. Number 12, comfort the morning with food, presence, and prayer. Number 11, contribute to Catholic charities or to a religious order. Number 10, give masses or have masses celebrated, is what she means, as gifts for the year to certain individuals including the deceased, the holy souls in purgatory. Number nine, witness to life via a protest of the death penalty, abortion, writing letters or participating in a prayerful witness. Number eight, host families for dinner on Fridays. Discuss your faith. Number seven, resolve to sing loudly, if not well, at Mass with joy and reverence. Number six, help with the catechism program at your church and become a witness for your faith. Number five, get more involved in the parish and diocese. Find out where help is needed and become that help. Number four, give up any unhealthy habit that keeps you from becoming closer to Jesus Christ. Number three, spend time discovering a saint's faith through their writings. That's a great one. Number two, ask for the graces you lack daily. And number one, spend time every day thanking God for his only begotten Son. And I thank Sherry Antonetti, a mother of 10 who lives just outside Washington, D.C. with her husband and her 10 children, for writing this article for the National Catholic Register. Some uh, great uh, 
points of wisdom there of things we can either give up, meaning negatively do for Lent, or positively do for Lent, things that we can proactively uh, carry out as activity. Again, we're not going to be taking your phone calls today. It's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade Menezes. If you'd like to be part of a future mailbag edition, just send us an email. That email address is openline at EWTN.com. That's openline at EWTN.com. You know... um, it's important, and I think most of the masters of the spiritual life down through the centuries um, would stress the importance of not biting off more than you can chew when mm. trying to advance oneself in the spiritual life, huh? Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, as with anything, we never want to bite off more than we can chew. As you state so well, we want to uh, have moderation in all things, even in those things where we're trying to advance in the spiritual life. There's a great quote by St. Philip Neri, uh, the founder of the Oratorian Fathers, who was known to be of a very sanguine temperament, a very happy-go-lucky temperament, practical jokester. He says, quote, "...one should not wish to become a saint overnight, but rather little by little, step by step, grace by grace." Great quote, fantastic quote from St. Philip Neri, and I think that kind of uh, uh, sums up what it is, uh, the, the point, very good point you're trying to make there, Jack. Again, it's a special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade Menezes, our very favorite Father of Mercy, as we talk faith, family, and fellowship. If you would like to be a part of a future mailbag edition, all you have to do is either send us an email the email address again is openline at EWTN.com. That's openline, all one word, at EWTN.com. Or, go ahead, Father. One more thing I'd like to say, uh, kind of bouncing off what you just recommended about things in moderation, what we do even for the spiritual life. You know, uh, look at it this way for Lent, something sacramental, something pietal something social or cultural. So something sacramental. You're going to commit yourself to monthly confession and weekly Eucharist and maybe visiting the Blessed Sacrament once a week outside of Mass. Something that's associated with piety, Uh, maybe taking on five decades of the rosary a day or making the morning offering or the midday examination of conscience. And then something social or cultural, helping out a soup kitchen. Anything along those lines. But those are three great categories to start out with. It's EWTN's Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade Menezes. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. Got a great item for you in EWTN's religious catalog. It's a book by Anthony DiStefano. Greenlee is Growing. This best-selling author has a new, beautiful, poetic, rhyming picture book celebrating the four seasons and how they interact with the seasons of our lives. 
We first meet the main character, Greenlee, as a young girl of three in the flowering springtime of life. Greenlee is growing, follows her through the spring of her youth and the summer of her adulthood. By the end of the book, she is a lovely old woman knitting by the fire in the cold days of winter. This is a timeless story of faith and fortitude with gentle joy that people of all ages will love. It's recommended for ages three through seven. And it's available now at EWTN's Religious Catalog. That's EWTNRC.com. They're offering free standard shipping on online orders of $75 or more. Use uh, that standard shipping in the continental U.S. only and use the code FREE at checkout. Again, it's a special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday, so we're not taking your phone calls today. If you'd like to be a part of a future mailbag program, send us an email, Line at EWTN.com. Amy in Idaho writes in, she says, I have a question for Father Wade Menezes. In Matthew chapter 21, verse 31, Jesus uses the word before in reference to tax collectors and harlots getting into the kingdom of God before the scribes and Pharisees. By using the word before, do you think Jesus was alluding to purgatory? Yeah, he very well could have been in regards to the scribes and the Pharisees having to go to purgatory, (laughs) because the other ones will enter heaven before they do. Now, I'm not sure if that's how Amy's asking the question or not, but that's how I would read it if you're going to make a purgatorial application to it. Um, The the whole passage... is 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 this? It's just a few a, sh- a few verses from Matthew twenty one verses twenty eight through thirty two. Uh, Jesus says, "What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today.' And that son answered, I will not.' But afterward he repented and went. Okay, so there's certain repentance there. He knew he did wrong, right? And then the father went to the second and said, the same. And that son said, the second son said, I go, sir." but he ended up not going at all. So which one of the two did the Father's will? And his disciples answered, the first. And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you then, the tax collectors and the harlots go into the kingdom of God before you do. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe in him. But the tax collectors and harlots did believe in John. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward repent and believe in him. So they're clearly in the wrong, okay? They did not repent, but at least the, 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 those tax collectors and harlots did, okay? Now, even if we repent, there could still have to be a temporal punishment due for already forgiven sin if we have not yet atoned for the temporal punishment by the time of our earthly death, because that's the only thing purgatory is about, right? The need to atone for temporal punishment for already forgiven mortal and venial sin, if at the time of one's earthly death the temporal punishment has not yet been fulfilled. Meaning if, at the time of your earthly death, the temporal punishment for already forgiven mortal and venial sin has been fulfilled, there's no need to go to purgatory at all. At all. One enters heaven immediately. And that's God's plan A for us. So great great question and a great application uh, for purgatory. In fact, it's one of the ones that the Church does use uh, in her defense of purgatory, and tied to the reality of repentance as well. Thank you so much, Amy, for a great question. We're not taking your phone calls today on this mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday, but one way you can become part of a mailbag edition is to give us a call on our regular number after 
4 p.m. Central Time. That number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Give us a call after 4 p.m. Central Time, and you can leave your question for Father Wade. Let's take a listen to one of those listener comment line questions now. My name is Linda, and the question I have is, when Jesus died and resurrected, he still had the wounds from his crucifixion, although his body was transformed, I I think. The question is, when our bodies return to our souls at the second coming, will our bodies be unblemished? That's a great, great question, and I address that very doctrine of the Church in my book, The Four Last Things, A Catechetical Guide to Death, Judgment, Heaven, and Hell, in my chapter on heaven, in the chapter on heaven that talks about the primary characteristics of the glorified risen state. And to answer your question, no, we will not have any deformities or imperfections Uh, in our glorified risen state, those of us who are going to heaven. Uh, Deformities are defined as things that we are born with, maybe a club foot or maybe with a hand not fully formed, and imperfection would be defined as something that comes to our body after birth, like maybe a car accident leaves a, a wound on your arm or your leg, and that would be an imperfection. So that's the difference between a, de- a difference between a deformity and an imperfection. And the Church teaches that uh, in the glorified risen state, in other words, the characteristics of the risen body, there's four primary ones. They're mentioned in my book, The Four Last Things. Um, we will not have deformities or imperfections. And the four primary characteristics of the glorified risen state uh, are impassibility, subtility, agility, and clarity. And I talk about each one of those uh, in depth in the book. So for example, uh, impassibility means that the body is incapable of suffering or dying forever, right? Subtility regards the human person's spiritualized nature at the resurrection of their body. Um, uh, It it enables the body to to have a free form of movement, right? That's that's a a transfigured soul uh, reunited to the body and what that means. Uh, So thus, subtility, the second of, of these four characteristics, grants the resurrected body the ability, for instance, to pass through solid objects. Jesus did this himself in his glorified risen body. Uh, in the upper room, when he appeared to the disciples and apostles all of a sudden, when he wasn't with them. For example, when uh, Thomas doubted, Jesus appeared suddenly to the apostles, although the doors were locked, we're told very specifically in in Scripture. Uh, The third uh, characteristic of the glorified risen state is agility. All right, agility is the capability of the body to obey the soul with the greatest ease and speed of movement. We see this with Jesus on the road to Emmaus, when after they recognize him in the breaking of the bread, he vanishes from their midst instantaneously, okay? And then fourthly, clarity means that the glorified body is free from everything deformed or anything imperfected on it, obtained after birth, and is filled with utter beauty and radiance. And that's the one that her question, uh, our call-in our, our call uh, person's question refers to specifically of the four is the clarity. Now, why do Jesus's... Um, 
wounds remain because they remain a sign of his triumph. St. Thomas Aquinas makes this very, very clear. According to St. Thomas Aquinas, our Lord kept in his glorified body the marks of his wounds for four primary reasons. Number one, as an everlasting testimony of his victory over death. Number two, as a proof that he is the same Christ who suffered and was crucified. Number three, as a constant and concrete plea on on our behalf to the eternal Father in heaven. And number four, he kept his wounds in his glorified risen state as a means of upbraiding the reprobates, the damned, on the last day, showing them what he did for them, thus reminding them of what they have wickedly despised and rejected nonetheless. Those are the four main reasons why Christ kept his glorified risen state, according to the teachings of St. Thomas Aquinas. It is important that we strive never to be caught in the snares of the reprobates, the damned, who will be confronted on the last day with the wounds of Jesus Christ. I state this uh, in my book, The Four Last Things. Uh, We must never lose sight of the fact that these beautiful truths of our resurrection are made possible only by and through Christ's own resurrection. They not only come from him and are made possible by him, but he he deigned to assume them himself as a further example of his love for us and to demonstrate the eternal reward that awaits us if we cooperate with God's grace here on earth. So there you have it. Uh, Deformities at birth and imperfections obtained after birth uh, will no longer be present in the glorified risen state of the human person, but as you rightly intimated, Christ's wounds do remain for those four primary reasons. And the four gifts, or the four dotes in the Latin, D-O-T-E-S, the four gifts or the four dotes of the glorified risen state of the human person is the impassibility, the subtility, uh, the agility, and uh, the clarity. The clarity. There you have it. Uh, get my book, The Four Last Things, A Catechetical Guide to Death, Judgment, Heaven, and Hell. And I describe all this uh, in the chapter on heaven. Uh, John in Boston writes in, what are my obligations to my parents, and what are my children's obligations to me? Oh, great question, John. I want to direct you to uh, the duties of family members, parents towards children and children's towards parents. That's the title of that section in the Universal Catechism, the duties of family members. It's paragraph numbers 2214 through 2231. And to answer your question specifically, what are my obligations to my parents? What are my children's obligations to me? We look to numbers 2217 and 2218 in that same section. 2217 says this, as long as a child lives at home with his parents and has not yet been emancipated, meaning moved out, uh, the child should obey his parents in all they ask of him when it is for his good or that of the family. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord, to quote Colossians 3.20 and Ephesians 6.1. This is very important. Children should also obey the reasonable directions of their teachers and all to whom their parents have entrusted them. But if a child is convinced in conscience that it would be morally wrong to obey a particular order from either parents or teachers, he must not do so. And as they grow up, children uh, should continue to respect their parents. They should anticipate their wishes, willingly seek their advice, and accept their just admonitions. Obedience towards parents ceases with the emancipation of the child from the home, but not so respect, which is always owed to parents. This respect has its roots in the fear of God, one of the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit. 
And then the fourth commandment reminds grown children of the, of the responsibilities they have toward their parents. As much as they can, they must give them material and moral support in old age and in times of illness, loneliness, or distress. Jesus recalls this duty of gratitude. Uh, For the Lord honored the father above the children, and he confirmed the right of the mother over her sons. Whoever honors his father atones for his sins, and whoever glorifies his mother is like one who lays up treasures in heaven. Whoever honors his father will be gladdened by his own children, and when he prays, he will be heard. Whoever glorifies his father will have long life, and whoever obeys the Lord will refresh his mother. That's from the book of Sirach, chapter 3, verses 2 through 6. And so remember, uh, all this is very, very important in regards to the relationships of the family. And just to sum it up, uh, paragraphs number 2251 and 2252, this is in the in brief section of that larger section on marriage and family. Uh, we read this, children owe their parents respect, gratitude, just obedience, and assistance. Filial respect fosters harmony in all of family life. It's EWTN's Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade Menezes. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. That's right. We're emptying out the mailbag. We won't be taking your calls today. If you'd like to be part of a future mailbag program, just send us an email, openline at EWTN.com. Marge writes in, if we all came from the same parents, Adam and Eve, how do we explain the different races? Boy, what a great, great question, and a loaded one at that, I might add. Uh, that, that's, a, that's a great question that we can look at several different categories in regards to arriving at the answers. I, I notice I put answers in the plural. Uh, first of all, there's simple genetics, right? Simple genetics plays a, a big role in this and adapt, adaptation to uh, physical geographical locations with those genetics. Um, there's also the flood, as given the account in sacred scripture. Uh, there's also scripture passages themselves, especially Acts 17, which I'll read shortly. And then there's also the whole reality of the Tower of Babel uh, from the Old Testament that is recounted again uh, in, in Acts 17. You know, God, God, God permitted this to take place in the dispersion of peoples. And so, again, genetics, the flood, Scripture itself, and the Tower of Babel, we can look at that and, and realize uh, how the different races came about, although stemming from one set of first parents. So let's look at genetics briefly here, and I'll do it in as simple layman terms as I can for the benefit of everyone, including myself. (laughs) Uh, You know, skin shade is governed by multiple genes and is quite complex, but for the sake of simplicity, again, assume for a moment there there are only two genes. Genes come in pairs of pairs, right? So during reproduction, half of the genes passed on to the offspring come from each parent. Uh, And so for this discussion, let's assign the letters capital A and capital B to the genes that code for large uh, amounts of of melanin, which helps uh, discern uh, and and make possible the skin color of a particular individual, uh, the brown-colored pigment in everyone's skin. Uh, And we'll use the letters lowercase a and lowercase b to designate 
the genes for small amounts of melanin, okay? So in very dark-skinned people groups, uh, individuals carry the capital AA and the capital BB genes and only produce dark-skinned offspring. In very light-skinned people's groups, we have individuals carrying the lowercase AA and the lowercase BB genes, and they only produce uh, the light uh, pigment-skinned offspring, all right? But if a male and female from each group mate and produce a child, then the combination of their capital A, capital A, capital B, capital B, and the, ca- and the lowercase AA and the lowercase BB would give rise to a child who now carries capital A, lowercase a, capital B, lowercase B genes for melanin and would be middle brown to skin shade. Now, if two people carrying that gene, the capital A, lowercase a, capital B, lowercase B genes got married and reproduced, their children could conceivably have a wide range of skin colors because of the grandparents who carried only capital letters and the second set of grandparents who, ca- who carried only lowercase letters of lowercase AA and lowercase BB. So that's simple layman's terms. That, that's how it can very easily come about, right? Very easily come about. Then uh, in regards to the flood, uh, you know, we, we look at the, the life of Noah and his sons Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and they were, all you remember, rescued in the flood, and they came back and began to populate the earth once again. And the best that we can tell, Shem located with his people to the Middle East, and the descendants of Ham and Japheth uh, seem to have uh, went to the European region. It's difficult to know all of this specifically, but they obviously, through the years, adapted themselves to the areas nonetheless, regardless of what areas they went to, right? And so they, of course, began to develop uh, and all of their, their own offspring and the offspring's offspring, and they all uh, adapted to their respective areas, and the different races eventually came. And with regards to Scripture, setting aside the scientific and historical explanations, we simply see a statement that's very profound in Acts 17, where it says, quote, The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with human hands, neither is he served by human hands as though he has need of anything. Rather, he made from one every single nation. Okay, now that's a literal interpretation of Scripture. And remember, we do have literal as well as spiritual interpretations of Scripture, and the spiritual interpretation of Scripture is broken down in three subsets, the moral, the allegorical, and the anagogical. So really, there's four senses of Scripture in two parent categories, the two parent categories being the literal and the spiritual, and the four total senses being the literal, reading at face value, like this Acts 17 passage I just read, and the spiritual of that, which would be allegorical, uh, anagogical, or moral. So that's important to take into effect. But again, uh, he's the God who made from one every single nation. And then another major component is what happened at the Tower of Babel, of course, right? This needs to be looked at, where God scattered all the nations all over the face of the earth and changed their languages because they were stubborn and prideful and trying to build a tower that ascended to the heavens. So the best answer is right there in Acts 17. God did it, right? Uh, And God uh, sort of, of, of... brought all things about in such a way that there would be many, many races stemming from one set of first parents. Now, that's my layman's answer, right? Uh, But there's, of course, a lot in genetics. In fact, the latest DNA studies show that all the races can be traced to one set of first parents. And this is, these are studies done by secularists, not necessarily people with faith. And that's that's a profound thing. So the more and more we learn about DNA, 
the more I say, bring on the DNA studies, uh, because we already have secular scientists specializing in DNA who can acknowledge that the human person uh, stems back to one set of first parents, and that's a, a great thing that is in total harmony with the creation accounts of the human person. Again, it's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday. Let's take a listen to another one of our listener comment line calls. Vivian Harrison, Virginia. My question is, why is it that priests do not mention Scripture to help people overcome their sins uh, during confession? And isn't confession, isn't it dangerous for a priest to hear so many of the salacious things, sins that that the laity bring to confession. Okay, great twofold question. So first of all, uh, I'm I'm sure she's talking her own personal truth when she says that she senses that priests don't use scripture in confession, uh, and I'm sorry very sorry to hear that. I often use scripture in confession. In fact, my penances to penitents are often scriptural passages that I want them to read, so I use scripture all the time. And in fact, the whole rite, R-I-T-E, of the sacrament of penance and reconciliation, what we call confession, the sacrament of confession, that's another bona fide name for it. The sacrament of conversion is another name for it. Uh, reconciliation, penance, etc. The whole rite, R-I-T-E, of the sacrament of confession um, revolves around the reality of sacred scripture and all that we know about the mercy of God and Jesus coming for the forgiveness of sins and his very first words spoken in the Gospels are, or is, repent and believe in the gospel. Same first words used by his cousin, John the Baptist at the River Jordan. Very first words spoken by John the Baptist and Jesus Christ are repent quote, end quote. So, so the, the, the reality is that Scripture is very intimately tied to the sacrament of confession, so I'm sorry to hear that you've experienced that priests don't use Scripture in confession. Uh, I not only use Scripture when I will give a, uh, quite often when I give a, a penance, not all the time, but quite often, but I will often use a scenario uh, and I say this very, very generically, uh, in a hypothetical sense, if somebody was to confess adultery, in my counsel to them at the end, I would talk about the great mercy that Jesus showed the adulterous woman in Luke's gospel. And so if there was hope for her, there's hope for you. Never, ever forget that. So I'm always bringing Scripture into confession, okay? But I'm sorry to hear that has not been your experience. Uh, as far as, isn't it dangerous for a priest to hear such salacious sins uh, confessed by the laity. Well, first of all, I'm glad to hear you admit that the laity can confess salacious sins. Uh, so can priests. But because of the priest scandals, uh, the priests have gotten a bad rap, like it's only them who sin. And that's not the case. We are all sinners. Every single one of us are sinners, some more than others. And so I'm glad to hear you say and admit that, that the laity can have salacious sins. And not only can they have salacious sins, they can be so salacious that you're sincerely asking from your heart, can't this be dangerous for a priest to hear such sins confessed? Well, only if that priest lets such sins get to him. This is why priests need to be prayer warriors. They need to pray for their penitents to make good, holy, reverent confessions. They need to pray for their penitents to not go into great and graphic detail about their sins when all that's needed is kind and approximate number 
and any militating circumstance, thirdly, any militating circumstance that makes the already mortal sin objectively more grave, what the old uh, theological textbooks called changing the species of the sin. But even if you need to confess that third element to the mortal sin, you still do so very simply without a lot of greater graphic detail. So, uh, you know, as laity, you want to, conf- and as priest even, you, we want to confess correctly. We want to confess according to the mind of the church. If it's a venial sin, you only need to give kind. You don't even need to give approximate number. If it's a mortal sin, you confess kind, approximate number, and thirdly, if it's present, it may not be present, any militating circumstance that makes the already mortal sin objectively more grave. How will you know if this militating circumstance is, pr- is present or not? by having made a good examination of your conscience before you go into the confessional to make your confession. So while the sin may be salacious indeed, there's no need to give salacious uh, uh, graphic details about the salacious sin. That's not what's needed. Adultery, two times, with two different individuals, or adultery, two times, with one individual— that's all that's needed for the confession of adultery. And I use that because it's, it's a serious, salacious sin. It's a sin against the Sixth and Ninth Commandment. Um, so we don't need to go into greater graphic detail about our sins, but we do need to confess those elements that the Church wants us to confess, to make the, what's called an integral confession, a full, complete confession, not to be confused with that fullness and completeness of the confession being about great or graphic detail about the individual sins, because that's not what that means. Uh, an integral, full confession simply means you confessed it according to the uh, bare elements that are required to make the confession valid. And again, for venial sins, it's kind, meaning simply name it, name it simply. Kind of sin, you simply name it, name it simply. And then for mortal sins, again, kind, approximate number, and thirdly, if it's present, any militating circumstance that makes the already mortal sin objectively more grave. And even with that third element, you confess it very simply. Great question. Thank you so much. Alejandro writes in, what would be the best novena or prayer for a difficult marriage? I have been married to my husband for 12 years now, but I believe in my heart it's falling apart. I have been uh, praying to save my marriage, but it's there a way to make praying easier, like an app to help me keep track of my prayers? Or novenas. Thank you so much, Father Wade, for taking the time to answer my email. God bless you always. Well, thank you, Alejandro, and I can tell you, you speak with a great heart, and you want to save your message, and you love your spouse very much, is what I get from your sincerity of that question. You know, I simply Googled, uh, just now, I, I Googled uh, marriage novenas, and here are some of the categories that came up. Novena to help a marriage that is failing. A novena for a happy and faithful marriage. A novena prayer to undo the difficult knots in your marriage. A simple novena for marriage and family. A novena, again, for a happy and faithful marriage. It's a different one. So there's all kinds that are out there. Opus Dei puts one out for a happy, faithful, and fruitful marriage. There's a novena to St. Joachim and Anne, as far as answering your question as to what saints are good to pray to for a marriage that's somewhat broken or greatly broken. The parents of the Blessed Virgin, Joachim and Anne. How about um, St. Therese of Lisieux, her great, great doctor of the church, St. Therese of Lisieux. Uh, how about her parents, Louis and Zélie Martin? Uh, saints of the church now. They were canonized saints on July 15th of uh, 2015 at the Universal Synod of the Family. 
uh, called for uh, uh, by the Holy Father. How beautiful is that? Um, and their feast day, their universal feast day, the parents of St. Therese, Louis and Zélie Martin, their universal feast day is their wedding anniversary, July 12th. How beautiful is that, right? Uh, I also, Alejandra, I want to give you uh, a book title here that's very, very good. It's titled, um, oh, I had it here just a moment ago. Uh, Married and Blessed Saints. Married and Blessed Saints. Saints meaning they're, they're canonized. Married and Blessed Saints. So that's a, a book you might want to get. It's put out by Ignatius Press, and uh, that's a great thing. And there's also uh, this, two, uh, two other books I want to give you, three other books I want to give you. Head and Heart, Becoming Spiritual Leaders for Your Family and Healing Your Marriage. Head and Heart, Becoming Spiritual Leaders for Your Family. There's also A Family Guide to Spiritual Warfare, Strategies for Deliverance and Healing Within Marriage by Kathleen Beckman. Uh, 30 Days with Married Saints, A Catholic Couples Devotional by Kent and Caitlin Lasnowski, uh, L-A-S-N-O-S-K-I, and Married Saints and Blesseds Through the Centuries by Ferdinand Holbach. That's the first one I gave you. Uh, so there's four texts right there. If you didn't get their titles or their authors, go back and listen to the podcast uh, of, of this hour, and you can uh, write those down as you, as you play the podcast. But those are four great books on that uh, topic, Alejandra. I encourage you to take a look at some of those that are online that you can get. And also, again, St. Uh, Therese's parents, Louis and Zélie Martin, and also Saints Joachim and Anne, and a plethora of novenas to help marriages when you simply search on the search bar on the internet, marriage novenas. Great question, and please know that I will be praying for you and your husband for your own marriage. Thank you so much for your witness question today. You know, one of Father Wade's suggestions for how to improve your spiritual life is a daily chaplet of divine mercy, and we can help you with that, and we can even help you with Father Wade's encouragement to get up as soon as the alarm goes off and get your day started. Pray with us, the Chaplet of Divine Mercy, Monday through Friday mornings, 5 a.m. Eastern Time, right here on EWTN Radio. Let's take a listen to another one of our listener comment line calls. This is Justin from New Orleans, and my question is, the holy sacrifice of the Mass is the reenactment of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, and is it not this holy sacrifice of the Mass that somewhat corresponds to the Old Testament sacrificial uh, rites uh, spoken of in the Old Testament? And if you could please elaborate if, if that's how we, the Catholic Church, are the new Israel. Thank you. Yeah, that's a great question. And yes, Jesus himself says, I did not come to abolish the old law, but to bring it to fulfillment. And the word fulfillment in the Hebrew language, and even intimated in the Greek, means to render perfect. To render perfect. So you have the Old Testament sacrifices of, of, the, of the Jewish people, and it's brought to perfection in the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, and each and every Mass we celebrate uh, makes present again that one singular sacrifice that took place on that first Friday that we call Good Friday, which followed the night of the arrest on Holy Thursday night. So I don't want our listeners who are not Catholic to think that, 
Catholics keep crucifying Jesus over and over and over again with each and every Mass that's celebrated. We do not believe that. That's a heresy, uh, if you believe that. That's an absolute heresy. Uh, it ac actually could border on blasphemy. But what each Mass does do is that it represents, put the hyphen in there, R-E hyphen presents. It represents the one singular sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, which uh, won over sin and death for us on our behalf, offered to the Father, through the Son, in the Holy Spirit, which is also how each and every Mass is offered, and, and the collect prayer after the penitential rite at the beginning of Mass is always worded in such a way that it's directed itself, the collect prayer, uh, the opening prayer of the Mass, to the Father, through the Son, and the Holy Spirit, because that's how the sacrifice itself is directed. And in fact, throughout the Eucharistic prayer, we see the Mass offered to the Father, through the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So Jesus through the institution of the Holy Eucharist on the night of the arrest. So remember, Holy Thursday night is very intimately tied to Good Friday, because Good Friday had the death on the cross, but Holy Thursday night had the institution of the sacrament of the Eucharist, which makes present and perfect, rendered perfect, in its fulfillment from the Old Testament, that one sacrifice of Christ. So uh, the, the, the Good Friday is linked to the Holy Thursday, the Holy Thursday, the night of the arrest, is, and the institution of the Holy Eucharist is linked intimately to the Good Friday. So Jesus brings to perfection the old law. He doesn't abolish it. He tells us this himself in the Gospels. He brings it to fulfillment. And fulfillment, again, in the, in the Hebrew language, in Hebrew, and uh, even intimated strongly as such in the Greek, to bring to fulfillment, quote-unquote, means to render perfect, to render the thing perfect. And that's what he did. Uh, and we see this in some of the lives of the saints and their quotes. For example, St. Edith Stein, who I love dearly, uh, the great Auschwitz martyr. In religion, her name is Teresa Benedict of the Cross, the great Carmelite mystic who died at Auschwitz in the gas chamber. There's a famous quote of hers, and she's a, she's a Jewish convert to Catholicism. Remember that. She says, quote, Catholicism is the sole legitimate heir of Judaism. End quote. Catholicism is the sole legitimate heir of Judaism. And I think that speaks volumes. Great question. Thank you so much for your call-in question today. Stephen writes in, Hello, Father Wade. Can you tell me if 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 to 15 is evidence of purgatory? It seems to me that it is. It is, and yes, it is. And in his encyclical on hope, space salvi, uh, the late Pope Benedict XVI does a wonderful job of demonstrating how 1 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, he includes uh, as far back as verse 10 through 15, not just 12 through 15, uh, clearly supports the doctrine of purgatory. And it's interesting to note, too, uh, Stephen, that um, the great Protestant convert, Dr. Scott Hahn, mentioned this New Testament passage in 1 Corinthians as being decisive for him and accepting the church's teaching on purgatory. How's that? Uh, Dr. Hahn says, I must admit that theologically and psychologically, 1 Corinthians 3 basically sealed up my conversion. It was all sewn up for me when I worked through this, praying, studying, and pondering what the Catholic Church taught about purgatory. I think it's strong and clear. Now, here is the text in question, in, in question from 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, verses 10 through 15, according to Pope Benedict's writing. By the grace of God, God has given me. I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building upon it. But each one should build with care. 
For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what he has built survives, okay, the builder will receive a reward. But if it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved still, even though only as one escaping through flames. Now, let's, let's parse it out according to Benedict's teaching. Now, I know this text can be difficult to figure out, but it really isn't that complicated, according to Pope Benedict. Let's imagine you were contracted to build a house. If you have built your house out of high-quality materials like gold, silver, and costly stones, a fire will not burn it down. But if you built your house out of inferior materials, like wood, hay, or straw, the house is going to burn down when tested by fire. Now, what about your spiritual house? Are the good works you've performed during your life in order to build your spiritual edifice, are these works going to withstand the fiery scrutiny on Judgment Day when Jesus Christ judges you? Or have low-quality and shabby materials marred with the appearance of your spiritual edifice? Now, there are two things that can happen to you if you're inside a burning house. This is brilliant. You can either perish in the fire or escape outside to safety. In the latter instance, where you escape, the fire proves to be remedial or purifying. Your shoddy workmanship is consumed. The fact that you built your house with shoddy materials, but yet you escaped and you still live. In the context of judgment, this image of a saving or purifying fire sounds a lot like purgatory. And in the passage in question from 1 Corinthians 3, St. Paul speaks of such a situation where the shoddy workmanship is burned up, and yet the builder will suffer loss, but yet will still be saved, even though only as one escaping, though through the flames of a fire. That's verse 15 of 1 Corinthians 3. The Ignatius Study Bible explains 1 Corinthians 3.15 in this manner, quote, Some Christian workers whose efforts are shabby and imperfect will pass through God's fiery judgment like a man who barely escapes a burning building with his life. This prelude to salvation will involve painful spiritual consequences, which, though severe, will spare them eternal damnation. Catholic tradition interprets Paul's teaching in the light of purgatory a final stage of purification for those who are destined to heaven but depart from this life still burdened with venial sins or with an unpaid debt of temporal punishment incurred from past sins, that is to say mortal sins already forgiven but imperfectly repented of. A temporal punishment still remains for them. Passing through fire is thus a spiritual process where souls are purged of residual selfishness and refined in God's love. There you have it, 1 Corinthians 3, verses 10 through 15, a great, great defense of purgatory. Father, would you leave us with a blessing? I certainly will, Jack. May the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit descend upon all of our Open Line Tuesday listeners and remain with each and every one of you this day and always, St. Joseph, Terror of Demons. Pray for us on behalf of our host, Father Wade Menezes, our producer, Michael McCall. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in. Back at it tomorrow with Father Mitch. Until then, God bless.